This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Ryan Merkley, CEO of Creative Commons, a nonprofit that allows sharing and use of creativity and knowledge through free and legal tools. At no cost, their user-friendly copyright licenses offer a simple standardized way to give public permission to provide and use creative work. Creative Commons develops, supports, and stewards legal and technical infrastructure that maximizes digital creativity, sharing, and innovation. Ryan studied political science and economics at the University of Waterloo. Prior to joining Creative Commons, he served as the Chief Operating Officer of Mozilla, makers of the internet browser Firefox. He also worked as the Director of Corporate Communications for the 2010 Winter Games in Vancouver and Senior Advisor to Mayor David Miller of Toronto, where Ryan led the Mayor's Budget Policy and initiated Toronto's Open Data Project. Ryan has also advised political campaigns on the local and national levels. Ryan, good to have you with us today. Hello, good morning. Thanks for having me. Creative Commons is among those at the forefront of the technological and legal communities. Did you always want to work so closely with technology? Um, I, I think I did. Um, I, uh, when, I, when I look back uh, and think of my career, I, I think that I've always worked at the intersection of social good and technology. Um, I was a, an early uh, volunteer um, at Engineers Without Borders when it was just a few people working in a an old box factory in Ontario, uh, and uh, you know, follow that thread. I've always been working at the space between uh, where where technology and social good intersect. And where did the impetus uh, to work for social good come from? Sometimes um, children grow up and uh, and they want to be on Wall Street, or they want to mm -hmm. uh, uh, to be the the mayor or governor, or they want to work in a particular area. Yeah, it's not always taken for granted that social good is at the forefront. Um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. I mean, in terms of you know my upbringing, I I didn't grow up in a particularly activist family or or anything like that. Um, I will say, you know, when I uh, at one point uh, in my career, a colleague and I started a, a little consulting company, um, and we used to say that, you know, when uh, and when someone does a startup or somebody. Uh, creates a nonprofit. Uh, you know, they have this overwhelming and burning desire to change one thing, um, and and I've never really had that. I've always had this overwhelming, burning desire to change everything. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so maybe I'm just a bit of a troublemaker. But the idea and the opportunity to work on the kinds of things that have those sort of broad-reaching implications are always have always been the things that lit me up. Um, a wicked problem has always been a thing that I, I signed up for. I'm, I'll often say that I'm happiest in the midst of a teeter, teetering disaster or a hot mess. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, so I've always been looking for that. And the idea of uh, the corporate world just didn't call me the way that uh, the idea of changing the world did. And how did you come into your role as COO of Mozilla? I met the folks at Mozilla 
when I was working uh, for David Miller, the former mayor of Toronto. Um, and David and I were working on uh, open data uh, at a time when there weren't a lot of cities that were doing it. You know, uh, Vivek Kundra in DC was way out front uh, and doing open data there. Um, and then San Francisco, New York, Vancouver, and Toronto were kind of coming up, and then a few other little small cities. Um, and so we were, you know, we were all sort of concurrently trying to figure this thing out and, and what the potential was. And one of the things that I felt really strongly about was that open data wouldn't be successful unless it had uh, an open community around it. Um, and I just had no idea how to do that. And so I reached out to Mozilla, who had uh, a fairly, well, a growing office in Toronto. At the time, it was about 20, uh, 20 staff or so. Uh, today, it's, it's uh, over 100 uh, in Toronto. And I reached out to them and said, you know, you guys build Firefox with volunteer coders. You have an open source community around the world in multiple languages. You know, what can we learn uh, from you about uh, about that as we do open data? Um, and uh, and I worked with them as as we um, tried to sell it internally, and we tried to tell the story of what we, what we thought was possible. Um, and when David Miller decided not to run again in 2010, um, the Folks at Mozilla asked me if I would come and join them there. And what differences uh, for our listeners are there between Firefox and the browsers put forth by Microsoft, by Google, by Apple? I think the, mo the most significant, there are two very significant differences. Um, one is uh, at the heart of who the organization is and who it serves. Um, Mozilla is an organization that was founded uh, around an idea that users should have choice and control and opportunity uh, in the in, on the web. You know, this was at a time when 98% of the web was run by one uh, for-profit browser uh, that was making choices about what the web was going to look like um, based on what proprietary technology they wanted to put into it or how they wanted to preload it on their uh, on their systems, um, and you know, for those of us that remember the web back then, it was pretty lousy. Um, it was slow, and there were pop-ups, and and uh, it felt like a kind of scary, dangerous place where your information was going to get stolen, or where you were going to have somebody, you know, dive into your computer and and uh, and take it over. Um, and you know, Firefox came along and said we could we could have something better. Um, and the fundamental underpinning of Firefox and Mozilla, the organization that makes it, is the organization doesn't belong to uh, shareholders. It belongs to uh, actually a nonprofit, the Mozilla Foundation, who run it for the benefit of everyone. And so the decisions that get made about the types of products and the way those products shall be um, is driven by what is best for the user, what is best for the public interest, what is best for the web. And that has fundamental implications for the products that are built as a result of that. Um, the other thing, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier in my comments about open data, is that um, Mozilla's products are built by um, both uh, a strong staff team, but also a kind of volunteer movement of people all over the world uh, who contribute their time uh, and energy and ideas to this idea that is, you know, for the benefit of all of us. So something like 40% of the code that is in Firefox is written by people who don't work for Mozilla. 
Um, you know, this is a, a product that ships in 83 languages every time it ships, uh, translated by volunteers around the world who want it to be in their language so they can use it in their own communities. So that's, you know, that's at the heart of that. And no, while many other browsers have come along and copied the features uh, that Firefox made popular, which I consider winning, um, because Mozilla's goal was to shape the web, and that means on every browser, not just on Firefox, um, none of them have that character that underpins their decision-making and the type of organization that they are, which is why Mozilla is an organization that we need uh, to be successful. Um, and that's not about market share. That's about it's important that there be one, um, one organization doing that kind of work that uh, is influencing the shape of the web. And an organization that continues to thrive, doesn't it? Absolutely. Sure. And how did you become involved with Creative Commons? Um, I first learned of Creative Commons when I was in university. Like a lot of people, I, I read Larry Lessig's book, Free Culture. Um, and at the time, uh, there was a, a video of one of Larry's talks. It was, you know, uh, it was his slides and his voice. And uh, Larry Lessig, our, our founder, um, had this sort of rapid-fire style of, uh, you know, white text on black background and the slides clipped by, you know, one or two a second uh, at a really rapid rate. And it was very, at the time, a very unique uh, delivery. And his talk was very compelling. Uh, the sort of free culture movement and the idea that um, content owes a little bit of something to everything that came before it, and yet all those who build on top of creativity have a tendency to then lock it down for all those who would come after them to kind of pull up the rope ladder behind them. Um, and that was my introduction to the open web, the idea of a collaborative, um, a collaborative internet, one that we built together, not just one that um, was for individual benefit. Um, many years later, after working at Mozilla, um, I was approached by um, the search uh, group that was seeking a, a new CEO for Creative Commons, uh, and the timing was very right, um, both because it's an organization I care very much about, and, and like Mozilla, I think it's an organization that is vital to the success of, of the open internet and to the collaborative um, world of creativity and science and art and education that we all care about and benefit from, and also because the organization was uh, in a difficult spot, um, both in terms of sustainability and focus, um, and that's what lights me up. Uh, I'm, you know, happiest in the midst of a hot mess or a teetering disaster, and there was an opportunity to step in and help, uh, and so it was a good fit. And you came actually to Creative Commons before. Uh, or rather after an extensive background in politics, uh, including with Toronto politicians. So did your work in politics involve technology? Uh, it did. Um, you know, it's, I used to joke when I was at Mozilla that when I worked for the mayor of Toronto, I was frequently the most technical person in the room. And when I went to Mozilla, I was usually the least technical person <laughs> in the room. Yeah. Um, and largely because the bar was set way, way higher uh, at Mozilla, some you know incredibly bright people there. Um, at uh, in my work in politics, you know I was, you know these were early days of the web. This is two thousand three that I first went into uh, into municipal government. Uh, so I you know I was building websites, I was uh, running email campaigns, and um, you know I remember you know these things are you know kind of old hat now, but I remember running a campaign around. Um, around our budget and around uh, you know taxes, 
uh, in Toronto where we, you know, set up a, a web page that automatically emailed your city councillor for you and flooded their inboxes with emails from concerned constituents. And, you know, these kinds of campaigns you can set up in about five minutes on a website now. Um, at the time, it was a lot of, you know, handwritten code in order to get that done. But I had a lot of angry city councillors outside of my office saying, please make this noise stop. And I was saying, well, maybe you should read the emails. Um, um, and so, you know, I, I did a lot of that kind of communications and, and technology campaigning, um, and then also worked on, on things in my time at, at, uh, in civic government where, you know, things like, uh, 311. So Toronto implemented a 311 system, a, a three digit call center where you could get, um, any service at a single, from a single number, which New York famously did and, and Toronto did one as well. Um, so I worked on the, you know, the launch of that. Um, uh, through on the political side, I mentioned I led open data. Um, so yeah, those kinds of things have always sort of pervaded my work, um, but certainly not the only thing uh, I did at City Hall. I did I did lots of work on environmental issues, on transit, uh, and as you mentioned in the introduction, I I ran the budget process on behalf of the mayor. Um, but yeah, those technology things have always been a consistent thread for me, both because it's my passion and, and the opportunity to make a difference there. And how does your political experience uh, support your work with Creative Commons? I would imagine that it uh, it, it tangibly contributes. I think it does. I mean, um, I wish that the things that I studied in political science had any relevance to actual politics, but unfortunately, they, I don't think they really do. It's often theory in college, isn't it? Uh, it's a lot of theory, and um, actual politics is about you know, human relationships and negotiation and diplomacy um, and, uh, you know, trying to understand the levers of, uh, of power, but also the sort of levers of impact. If I, if this, then that. Um, and the more layers down you can play that out, the more moves ahead you can play, the better you get at both policymaking and politics. Um, being able to say, well, if we do this thing, then what will what will happen there. Doing that one move is easy. Doing that 10 moves uh, is how you get to be, you know, chief of staff to the president. Um, and I don't play at that level, but, you know, that's, that is the art of it. Um, and figuring out that sort of cause and effect and if this, then that in every issue um, is, you know, what makes for good strategy. Uh, and so that's helped, that helped me in politics and it certainly helps me now. I think the diplomacy piece is also a big part of it. Um, Every community requires diplomacy, whether it's, you know, Wikipedia or Mozilla or Creative Commons or working with governments, you name it. Um, it's a big part of what we do. Um, and CC does lots of work with, with governments, and, and we have a global community, 85 chapters around the world, um, who are working all over to advance causes, and also uh, we work together, and, and that, that is necessarily political in itself. And those skills uh, came into your play, no doubt, as the director of corporate communications for the Vancouver 2010 Winter Games before your work with Creative Commons. And how did you come to fill that role? Um, yeah, I worked for the city in that one, which was fascinating. Um, so the, there were seven different agencies that delivered the Olympics in 2010, and the, and, um, the municipal government of Vancouver was one of them. Um, and I was hired as director of corporate communications for the city of Vancouver uh, to do that work. Uh, so I moved out there maybe six weeks before the games and stayed on uh, for a number of months afterwards. Um, how did I come to it? Um, 
they the the city had a vacancy in that role and had had it for some time, and they were uh, very close to elect to um, very close to the games and. Um, the city manager there, Penny Ballum, at the time, uh, knew that that wasn't a seat she wanted empty going into the Olympics. Um, but the city was in a tough spot looking for someone to drop in and fill that role. And so they needed somebody who understood municipal politics and could run the corporate communication shop of a civic government, but also um, you know, had uh, municipal experience. Um, and there aren't a ton of people like that. And then one that was willing to come in and drop in uh, at the last minute. You know, I showed up uh, six weeks before the games uh, and had to uh, build our communication strategy and uh, staff up our team uh, and then execute on that strategy for the you know, the days of the games and then the, the Paralympics, which followed. Uh, and then kind of ramp it back down into a functioning communication shop that could do the daily business of, um, you know, one of the largest municipal governments in the country. And was it was that role filled with the kind of challenges that you described um, that you love each day, uh, especially for <laughs> such a prominent international event? Uh, yeah, I mean the Olympics are the <laughs> metaphor goes without saying yes. Yeah, the Olympics are the metaphor for things that are big, right? Like yeah. it was it was actually the Olympics, yeah. um, and so yeah, it was uh, it was remarkable. It was a million miles an hour. It was eighteen hour days. It was uh, you know three to five announcements a day. Um, uh, with often with dignitaries and heads of state, um, it was the highest security you've ever seen, um, and uh, you know the world's media on your doorstep, uh, looking at everything. Um, and we, you know, we, I think, you know, that team of uh, remarkable people at uh, at the city of Vancouver, who I uh, had the opportunity to work with, did more work in the days of the Olympics than. Uh, your average communication shop will do in a year, um, and uh, it was wonderful. And that you know, when people look back at the games and, and how successful it was for Vancouver and how good the city looked, um, I think it's widely regarded as as a success. And I think we were a little piece of that. And so yeah, it was it was great. Um, and you know, how, does it line up with what I like? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, showing up uh, at the last minute and having that opportunity to dive in, and uh, you know, it was definitely. Uh, a huge challenge um, to to leap over there and to step into that. Which, uh, again, is a wonderful preparation for your work with Creative Commons. Uh, the Internet uh, is the Internet. The Olympics are the Olympics, uh, both obviously on a planetary scale. So uh, Creative Commons vision is to realize the full potential of the Internet, obviously, and that means universal access, uh, full participation in culture, um, uh, driving a new era of development, uh, of growth, of productivity. So uh, tell for our listeners why we need a special system beyond copyright to address Internet access. Yeah. Um, you know, copyright has changed dramatically uh, since its original uh, conception. You know, in the, in the earliest days of copyright, it was a thing that people who printed books really cared about and regular people never thought about. Um, and it was a thing that had a very short term, uh, you know, 14 years with uh, once once registered, uh, once you registered your copyright, you had a 14-year term of copyright with an optional 14-year extension, and that was it. And then your work entered the public domain, and anyone could use it and reprint it or build on top of it. Um, and that was, you know, is intended as an incentive for creativity to encourage people to create something. 
um, knowing that they would have an opportunity to exploit it um, for some time and that later uh, that everyone would benefit from it because of that that original idea which I mentioned at the top that that all creativity owes a little bit of something to everything that came before it and over time that concept has been uh, perverted I think uh, to be really blunt about it um, the current term of copyright in the US is life plus 70 years um, and uh, the idea of a registration or what uh, what um, IP lawyers call formalities um, was um, taken out in the Berne Convention, um, which means that copyright is both uh, longer today than it has ever been in history, and it also is automatic. And so, at, a t at exactly the same time, when the internet turned everyone into a creator, when um, your cell phone became capable of shooting HD video the copyright laws went in exactly the opposite direction. In an age when sharing was infinitely possible and in the hands of everyone, copyright became more locked down and more uh, kind of durable and extended than ever. And the reason for that was not because you and I needed our copyright protection. The reason was because very large rights holders didn't want their particular copyrighted works to enter into the public domain. And so what they did is not only did they extend copyright forward, but they extended it backwards, which is ludicrous. But that particular moment was very important for Creative Commons um, because it spawned a uh, Supreme Court case challenging Congress's right to extend copyright retroactively. Um, and we lost that case. Um, there was no CC at that time. It was Lawrence Lessig, uh, our founder, uh, who fought that case along with some others. Um, and they lost that case and said, well, if not this, then what? What do we do for all those who want to share, who want to benefit from the power and potential of this internet that we have built? You know, the most powerful tool for collaboration and creativity and communication in history. And copyright locks everything on it down effectively forever. You know, long after I'm dead, will the things that I know be open uh, for use and reuse? Um, and so Creative Commons was imagined as a release valve, as an opportunity for those who chose to share, to share under the simplest of simple terms that were understandable by anyone and that were free and didn't require a lawyer or a legal team uh, in order to, uh, you know, to share a work, to try and see if we could, you know, create um, a, a creative commons of materials, of everything from video to uh, to photos, to audio files, to now academic articles, to open educational resources and textbooks, to 3D models, to data. Um, we, we write a report uh, every year now. We've started in 2014. We write a report called the State of the Commons Report, where we count uh, the size of the commons. Uh, between 2006 and 2016, the commons has increased in size almost 10 times over. So 140 million works in 2006. Uh, our last count today, 1.1 billion licensed works in the world. Which is an astonishing figure, and it's literally by an order of magnitude. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. 
Ingleway and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our interview with managing editor Robert Rim and Ryan Merkley, CEO of Creative Commons. Uh, and how do you personally, and, and how does Creative Commons feel about the current copyright laws? So Creative Commons was not created uh, to abolish copyright. Um, and, and you certainly haven't suggested that we were, but many um, have felt uh, you know, that CC was an organization that was anti-copyright. And that's certainly not the case. Um, what we want is uh, an environment of permissive and simple use and reuse for all those who want to share. I certainly feel that the current copyright regime sides very strongly with very large rights holders and hasn't really considered the realities of the internet we have today. It's still a copyright regime written for last century and maybe, to be honest, probably the century before that. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, as Cory Doctorow often says, that you know, the average person will make a thousand copies before breakfast just because of the way the internet works, and we live in a regime where co all copying is restricted, makes no sense. Um, and the idea that you know, we have copyright assigned to a person for their life plus 70 years and also live in a world where something like 25% of all the images that are uploaded to the internet are done so through platforms like Snapchat where they evaporate after five seconds. Um, how do those two things reconcile? How do we live in a world of you know, potential for infinite collaboration with a copyright regime that is built around restriction um, and uh, kind of locked down structures? So how, how do we? Well, I think two things happen. I think people push outside those boundaries and they ignore the rules. Um, and that's uh, largely what I think happens in a lot of social media is that uh, the content just flows and is moved around um, uh, as, as sort of infringement. Things just get posted. Um, and I think the, uh, the other opportunity or alternative is that people use CC. And as we've seen from the numbers, you know, millions and millions of people have made that choice to share their work uh, and, to, and to collaborate with others. You know, the, the thing that is a missed opportunity is that um, I think because the default is set to closed, uh, so many people miss out on that. That I, um, I went to a meeting in, in uh, Silicon Valley with a venture capitalist um, in, uh, in Palo Alto, and I, I told the story that I told you about the size of the commons. Um, and he looked at me um, and he said, a billion, a billion works. Is that a lot? <laughs> And only in Silicon Valley would someone look at you and say, a billion is a billion a lot. Um, but it was the right question, and it was, a, it was a fair question, because you know there'll be one and a half to two billion photos uploaded on the internet today alone. And so in some senses, a billion is not very much. Um, but the difference is that for every single one of those works, someone made the choice to share. Uh, the sort of highest order gift they can give to the commons. They share their work forever for everyone under simple terms. It's a massive gift. 
and 1.1 billion times over that's happened. Um, and that I think is remarkable because of that active decision that is required. Um, and that, you know, that has to happen for people to share right now because that default is set to closed. Um, so, you know, to answer your original question, what would I like to see in copyright? I would like to see much shorter terms. Um, I would like creators to be able to exploit their works, and I, w I don't want them to have to share if they don't want to. Um, but I do think the term of copyright is much too long to incentivize creation, and it means that so much is lost in terms of additional creativity that could fall out from shared use that comes from the public domain and others. And to be, uh, to be specific, what would you suggest as far as the length of copyright law? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't... Um, I don't, to be candid with you, I don't imagine I'll see a much shorter term of copyright in my lifetime anyway. Um, I think that um, uh, like, uh, like so many things in politics, um, those with money um, have much more influence over those who don't. And the large rights holders feel very strongly about protecting the extended term of copyright. Um, and so, you know, the term of copyright is just one thing. You know, I would like to see um, a return to what's called formalities or a requirement to exercise your copyright rather than it being automatic. So that if you want to have a copyright, you register it. Um, and never before in history has it been easier and cheaper to operate a system that allowed people to register. Um, we, that the internet gave us that. Um, and you know, it used to be in the earliest days of copyright, you had to go to an office and file a thing. Now you don't, and, and it would be so easy and inexpensive to create a, sim a system where those who want their copyright were required simply to register. It would be the easiest thing. And that would push literally billions of works into the commons because those who did not want their copyright would have to do nothing to share because it would be automatically shared unless they exercise their right. As a, so the default would be set to open. Um, I think that would be a massive change. I don't imagine that will go uh, go away any soon, uh, anytime soon. But I think that is even more important than the term of copyright, because frankly, those who want their extended terms of copyright, you know, fine, uh, so be it. Um, and you know, we we have other regimes where the term of an intellectual property is much shorter. You know, the term of a patent is only twenty years, uh, but the term of copyright is seventy. Um, you know, so you know, it's not like we. We have never seen uh, other other terms that were shorter, and and even in the world of patents, we are seeing um, industry and individuals saying there is value greater than the right to exploit this work. Um, and you know the the example I would point to is um, Tesla, um, Elon Musk, who uh, shared all of the patents for the batteries inside the Tesla vehicles, and th and that's you know. I, I think that that's an altruistic move, but I also think it's a very, very good business move because what Musk has uh, figured out is that the value of setting the standard in the market for batteries is more valuable than exploiting the work through licensing fees on the patent. And more and more young creators are tying into that, aren't they? Aren't they realizing that the value of exposure, especially with the reach of the internet, um, can, can far transcend the copyright value of a particular product? I think there are a number of business models where that makes a lot of sense, for sure. I think that creators are seeing the benefit. I think there are also uh, a lot of creators are looking for something greater than just uh, exploiting their works. I think there are also, there is power in collaboration. I think it is fundamental to who we are uh, as a species. 
we are collaborators. Um, and I think you know, that idea of fostering cooperation and sharing is also something that people are very uh, inspired by. That's what's not, you know, it's not just a, a selfish, oh, I can get promotion instead of profit. I think there's also a, I can invite a different kind of relationship to my work. Um, whether you're a scientist who wants to do open science or you're an educator that wants to collaborate with teachers around the world, or you're a photographer who wants exposure, there are different motivations. But I think that it is not just this private benefit versus that private benefit, exposure versus profit. I also think it is a different relationship to the work that, uh, that creators are interested in pursuing and Creative Commons enables that under simple permissive terms, which is really powerful. You know, the permission piece is really important because it allows that asynchronous collaboration. I find your work and I don't have to ask you anything. I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to get your attention. You've already told me I can use it and here are the terms. And as long as I follow those terms and honor your uh, honor the rights that you've given me and honor the uh, requirements that you've asked in exchange, we can work together without ever meeting. We can collaborate asynchronously and there's huge power in that. And the goal of Creative Commons, it's really a fascinating combination of both the philosophical and the tangible. So how do you balance uh, both of these aspects, Ryan? Yeah, it, you know, Creative Commons is um, kind of internet plumbing. Um, you know, someone at uh, a former communications director at Wikipedia once said to me, if CC didn't exist, they'd have to invent us. Um, the, the CC licenses, um, CC by SA or for attribution share alike, um, is the kind of base license that is used uh, underneath all Wikipedia content. Um, and allow, it just, it's, it's what makes the content on Wikipedia free and reusable and keeps it free and reusable because those who use it have to share alike. Um, and so, you know, CC plays that role in uh, dozens of different communities. So we are not, you know, we're not just a photography license. We are in all of these different communities, um, which pulls us in different directions about trying to think about everything from global copyright reform or, you know, the European consultation on copyright uh, exceptions which is and, and, and reform which is going on right now versus, you know, how we can support uh, open education uh, in uh, one country or another. Um, and so we're always kind of playing that balance between where can we have impact and where can we realize that vision, which, you know, the vision is huge. You, you read it off the top. Um, you know, what does that actually mean, though? Uh, for me, you know that that vision is about uh, a world that is more accessible and equitable and full of innovation, uh, where those who want to create are empowered to do so, um, and that we all benefit from that that collaboration and that sharing. Um, that's the that's the goal, um, and that that appears in a in a you know a number of different ways. In open science, it means more discovery, uh, or it means that you know when scientists or when 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 doctors in West Africa are trying to figure out which string of Ebola uh, is infecting uh, their patients, they can read the article uh, that, that uh, reveals it uh, without having to pay a $40 access charge. That's a true story. It was the Public Library of Science that published that research, and that was a free and open article, uh, an open access article, um, and that identified what strain of Ebola was infecting people in West Africa. The difference between reading that and not reading that is the kind of treatment you give to that patient 
is the life or death of that person. Um, and so this, you know, these are not insignificant impacts, um, and they're very real world. You know, as much as it's, you know, shared shared photos of of outer space, it's also, you know, real science. And you know, it's the difference between whether students in an inner city neighborhood have a good textbook uh, or not. Um, and so, you know, these are these are real issues, and CC is playing a, an important uh, role in all of them. And are the Creative Commons tools universal, or are they individualized licenses and infrastructure for different creators? Um, there are a set of standard licenses that can be applied uh, to a variety of different works. So it's the the you know, the most popular license is CC BY or CC for attribution, which allows uh, me to use a work shared by someone under that license, so long as I credit the author uh, and link back to their original work. Um, that license can be applied uh, to a variety of types of content, and so uh, there's just that one license. We've really tried to keep it as simple as we possibly could, um, and uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, as I go out and I speak to different communities. I would say it's equal parts requests to add more licenses and requests to eliminate licenses and make it simpler. Um, it really goes in both directions. In some senses, it is too complicated. There are six different licenses to choose from and two public domain uh, marks, um, and you know that's a lot of options. And in other senses, there are so many different use cases that we could fill uh, where we could add licenses, but it would also add complexity. Uh, and so we've, you know, we struggle with that every day to try and keep it as simple as it can be, but no simpler. And obviously, you work within the law. So another question that comes to mind is: uh, Are there those who do not support or embrace Creative Commons work? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, there are um, there are lots of organizations that uh, see a threat uh, to the way that they work uh, based on you know what CC. Uh, is used to enable. Um, I'll give you, you know, one one example that comes up frequently is is the idea of open access in research, scientific, um, you know, scientific and academic research and data. And uh, CC licenses are the kind of tool that is used to uh, enable access to those works, so that anybody can read and access um, that uh, that research. Um, there is a very large and well-established industry of academic publishing. Um, that industry makes its money by taking research that is funded frequently and in large part by the public and by public benefit organizations that is given those, you know, that research is funded to researchers who do the work. Then um, academic reviewers review that work, usually for free or for a very tiny stipend. And then the publishers publish that work and charge everyone to access it. They have a resource that they pay almost nothing for, that they profit in the billions over. And there is a very strong movement, um, which you can tell which side I'm on of it, um, that that work should be freely available for everyone, um, in part because we already paid for it, but also in part because that work benefits the public greatly. It's the, it's the research that allows us to understand the world we live in and to innovate and create solutions that benefit everyone. Um, and it won't surprise you to know that those traditional uh, publishers don't like Creative Commons and what it represents because it will undermine their current business model. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a new one for them out there, but it definitely means that the one that they have, its days are numbered. Um, and you know, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, 
governments around the world are adopting policies requiring open licenses on the things that they fund because they've realized that since the public already paid for it once, they shouldn't have to pay for it again. And because they want the maximum benefit uh, for their investment. And the Gates Foundation adopted an open policy uh, earlier last year requiring every dollar that they fund in research to be licensed under an open license and freely available so everyone can read it because for this exact reason Gates says if we fund it we want it to have the maximum public benefit and we already paid for it we don't want publishers charging others to read it um, the publishers are not happy about that so yeah there, there are those who, who oppose uh, some, of, some of the work that we do but also I think there are many who see that we're really just having a conversation about the type of value that we're going to create um, is that value going to exclusively create private benefit, or is that value also going to be for the public good? I think there can be a balance in that space, but I think so long as um, as those who uh, oppose think that it's either or, um, we'll be at loggerheads. I think if we've come to work together, then maybe there are new business models that we can work together on. And hopefully the dialogue can remain productive. Yeah, and, and we continue to talk to those publishers. and. Um, and I, I will tell you that many of them are, uh, you know, both see the writing on the wall, but also are looking to be innovative because they, you know, they're. Uh, I don't. I don't think their interest is in locking down uh, creativity. I think their interest is in continuing to be in business. Um, and so, you know, maybe this is the diplomacy side of me, but I'm saying the sooner that you uh, you help them see alternatives and that those alternatives become viable, the easier it is. Uh, to to move away from what's existing. At the same time, it's a little bit like like oil. You know, we all know it's going to run out. The question is really just how long. Um, and you know, for those for whom that is their their sole livelihood, the question is: Do we move to something different, or do we just squeeze this as long as we possibly can? And if that's their strategy, then we really have no choice but to keep pushing uh, to the alternatives. And uh, that's surely an international perspective. And in thinking about that, Creative Commons has a group of volunteers uh, that consist of over 100 affiliates working in over 70 jurisdictions to support and promote the organization's worldwide activity. Uh, what's your experience uh, been working cooperatively with such a wide range of volunteers, really across the world? I, you know, I think Creative Commons owes its global success to its international network. Um, that 1.1 billion works uh, number doesn't happen unless you have uh, people working all over the world um, in order to both spread the word and educate but also to make the licenses uh, usable uh, in every country. So um, when we originally created the licenses we used to write them uh, and this predates me but we would write them for the US and then we would work with uh, our affiliate chapters uh, now in 85 countries um, to do what we call port the license, uh, which is essentially adapt the license to the local legal context. And so a lead affiliate, usually an IP expert or a, a senior lawyer um, in a given country, say India or Bangladesh or, or Spain, would write the version that uh, made small changes to adapt that license so that it worked in the legal context of that country. In 2013, following a two-year process working with those affiliates, we released the first Creative Commons international license, one kind of one license to rule them all, and did away with the idea of porting. Um, and we worked with those affiliates to write one license that 
building on top of international copyright convention and treaty works in every country in the world, single license. Now, the licenses were always interoperable, the 2.0 and 3.0 licenses, but the 4.0 license is one license for the whole world. Um, and that was a huge deal. We could not have done that without the affiliate network writing that uh, license with us uh, and, and making it work globally so that if you apply a license in Germany, that that license will hold up in Canada uh, and so on and so forth. Which obviously is, is absolutely essential given the, uh, the instant access of the internet, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And are you optimistic, Ryan, about the, uh, the sense of collaboration and maybe even taking a, a, a step away from Creative Commons into the broader picture? Uh, but the idea of collaboration uh, among countries, among different cultures, uh, different languages, uh, different countries. Uh, I definitely am optimistic about it. I mean, uh, seeing the community and being part of the community at Creative Commons, but also you know, seeing similar and overlapping communities with uh, Open Knowledge and Wikipedia and Mozilla and, uh, you know, there... I, I still believe that the, the natural uh, state of, uh, of humanity is one of cooperation and collaboration, um, not just individual advancement. And I think that um, you know, creating the methods and tools in order to make that possible, we see over and over this human desire to work together and, and to collaborate. Uh, and so I think so long as we keep uh, making that easy, uh, making that case, um, and bringing people together that we'll see more of that and get closer to realizing that vision that we have at Creative Commons. And hopefully more people can tie into that vision because it's obviously essential well beyond Creative Commons and it, it touches really all spheres of, of what we do each day. Absolutely, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. The best way to reach Ryan and to support Creative Commons is through creativecommons.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.